My kinsman and myself were returning to Calcutta from our puja trip when we met the man in a train. From his dress and bearing, we took him at first for an upcountry Mohammedan, but we were puzzled as we heard him talk. He discoursed upon all subjects so confidently that you might think that the disposer of all things consulted him at all times in all that he did. Hitherto, we had been perfectly happy, as we did not know that secret and unheard of forces were at work, that the Russians had advanced close to us, that the English had deep and secret policies, that confusion among the native chiefs had come to a head. But our newly acquired friend said with a sly smile, There happen more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are reported in your newspapers. As we had never stirred out of our homes before, the demeanor of the man struck us dumb with wonder. Neither topic ever so trivial, he would quote science, or comment on the Vedas, or repeat quatrains from some Persian poet. And as we had no pretense to a knowledge of the science or the Vedas or Persian, our admiration for him went on increasing. And my kinsman, a theosophist, was firmly convinced that our fellow passenger must have been supernaturally inspired by some strange magnetism or occult power by an astral body or something of that kind. He listened to the tritest saying that fell from the lips of our extraordinary companion with devotional rapture, and he secretly took down notes of his conversation. I fancied that the extraordinary man saw this and was a little pleased with it. When the train reached the junction, we assembled in the waiting room for the connection. It was then 10 p.m., and as the train, we heard, was likely to be very late, owing to something wrong in the lines, I spread my bed on the table and was about to lie down for a comfortable dose, when this extraordinary person deliberately set about spinning the following yarn. Of course, I could get no sleep that night. When, owing to a disagreement about some questions of administrative policy, I threw up my post at Junagar and entered into the service of the Nizam of Hyderabad. They appointed me at once as a strong young man, collector of cotton duties at Barich. Barich is a lovely place. The Susta chatters over stony ways and babbles on the pebbles, tripping like a skillful dancing girl in through the woods below the lonely hills. A flight of a hundred and fifty steps rises from the river, and above that flight, on the river's brim and at the foot of the hills, stands a solitary marble palace. Around it, there is no habitation of man, the village and the cotton mart of Barich being far off. About 250 years ago, the Emperor Mahmud Shah II had built this lonely palace for his pleasure and luxury. In his days, jets of rose water spurted from its fountains, and on the cold marble floors of its spray-cooled rooms, young Persian damsels would sit, 
their hair disheveled before bathing and splashing their soft naked feet to the clear water of the reservoirs would sing to the tune of the guitar the cousins of the vineyards. The fountains play no longer, the songs have ceased. No longer do snow-white feet step gracefully on the snowy marble. It is but the vast and solitary quarters of cess collectors like us. Men oppressed with solitude and deprived of the society of women. Now, Karim Khan, the old clerk of my office, warned me repeatedly not to take up my abode there. Pass the day there if you like, but never stay the night. I passed it off with a light laugh. The servant said that they would work till dark and go away at night. I gave my ready assent. The house had such a bad name that even thieves would not venture near it after dark. At first, the solitude of the deserted palace weighed upon me like a nightmare. I would stay out and work hard as long as possible, and then return home at night jaded and tired, go to bed and fall asleep. Before a week had passed, the place began to exert a weird fascination upon me. It is difficult to describe or to induce people to believe, but I felt as if the whole house was like a living organism, slowly and imperceptibly digesting me by the action of some stupefying gastric juice. Perhaps the process had begun as soon as I had set my foot in the house, but I distinctly remember the day on which I was first conscious of it. It was the beginning of summer, and the market being dull, I had no work to do. A little before sunset, I was sitting in an armchair near the water's edge below the steps. The susta had shrunk and sunk low. A broad patch of sand on the other side glowed with the hues of evening. On this side, the pebbles at the bottom of the clear, shallow waters were glistening. There was not a breath of wind anywhere, and the still air was laden with an oppressive scent from the spicy shrubs growing on the hills nearby. As the sun sank behind the hilltops, a long dark curtain fell upon the stage of day and the intervening hills cut short the time in which light and shade mingle at sunset. I thought of going out for a ride, and was about to get up when I heard a footfall on the steps behind. I looked back, but there was no one. As I sat down again, thinking it to be an illusion, I heard many footfalls, as if a large number of persons were rushing down the steps. A strange thrill of delight, slightly tinged with fear, passed through my frame, and though there was not a figure before my eyes, I thought I saw a bevy of joyous maidens coming down the steps to bathe in the Susta in that summer evening. Not a sound was in that valley, in the river, or in the palace to break the silence, but I distinctly heard the maidens gay and mirthful laugh, like the gurgle of a spring gushing forth in a hundred cascades as they ran past me in quick, playful pursuit of each other towards the river, without noticing me at all. As if they were invisible to me, so I was, as it were, invisible to them. The river was perfectly calm, but I felt that its still shallow and clear waters were stirred suddenly by the splash of many an arm jingling with bracelets. 
that the girls laughed and dashed and splattered water at one another. Then the feet of the fair swimmers tossed the tiny waves up in showers of pearls. I felt a thrill at my heart. I cannot say whether the excitement was due to fear or delight or curiosity. I had a strong desire to see them more clearly, but naught was visible before me. I thought I could catch all they said if only I strained my ears. But however hard I strained them, I heard nothing but the chirping of the cicadas in the woods. It seemed as if a dark curtain of 250 years was hanging before me, and I would fain lift a corner of it tremblingly and peer through, though the assembly on the other side was completely enveloped in darkness. The oppressive closeness of the evening was broken by a sudden gust of wind, and the still surface of the susta rippled and curled like the hair of a nymph. And from the woods wrapped in the evening gloom there came forth a simultaneous murmur, as though they were awakening from a black dream. Call it reality or dream, the momentary glimpse of that invisible mirage reflected from a far-off world, 250 years old, vanished in a flash. The mystic forms that brushed past me with their quick unbodied steps and loud voiceless laughter and threw themselves into the river did not go back ringing for their dripping robes as they went. Like fragrance wafted away by the wind, they were dispersed by a single breath of the spring. Then I was filled with a lively fear that it was the muse that had taken advantage of my solitude and possessed me. The witch had evidently come to ruin a poor devil like myself, making a living by collecting cotton duties. I decided to have a good dinner. It is the empty stomach that all sorts of incurable diseases find an easy prey. I sent for my cook and gave orders for a rich, sumptuous Mughalai dinner, redolent of spices and ghee. Next morning, the whole affair appeared a queer fantasy. With a light heart, I put on a solar hat, like the sahibs, and drove out to my work. I was to have written my quarterly report that day, and expected to return late. But before it was dark, I was strangely drawn to my house. By what? I could not say. I felt they were all waiting, and that I should delay no longer. Leaving my report unfinished, I rose, put on my solar hat, and startling the dark, shady, desolate path with the rattle of my carriage, I reached the vast, silent palace standing on the gloomy skirts of the hills. On the first floor, the stairs led to a very spacious hall, its roof stretching wide over ornamental arches, resting on three rows of massive pillars and groaning day and night under the weight of its own intense solitude. The day had just closed, and the lamps had not yet been lighted. As I pushed the door open, a great bustle seemed to follow within, as if a, a throng of people had broken up in confusion, and rushed out to the doors and windows and corridors and verandas and rooms to make its hurried escape. As I saw no one, I stood bewildered, my head on end in a kind of ecstatic delight, and a faint scent of atar and unguents 
almost effaced by age, lingered in my nostrils. Standing in the darkness of that vast, desolate hall between the rows of these ancient pillars, I could hear the gurgle of fountains splashing on the marble floor, a strange tune on the guitar, the jingle of ornaments and the tinkle of anklets, the clang of bells toiling the hours, the distant note of Mahabharata, the din of the crystal pendants of chandeliers shaken by the breeze, the song of bulbuls from the cages in the corridors, the cackle of stalks in the gardens, all creating around me a strange, unearthly music. Then I came under such a spell that this intangible, inaccessible, unearthly vision appeared to be the only reality in the world, and all else a mere dream. That I, that is to say, Srijit so-and-so, the eldest son of so-and-so, of blessed memory, should be drawing a monthly salary of 450 rupees by the discharge of my duties as collector of cotton duties and driving in my dock cart to my office every day in a short coat and solar hat appeared to me to be such an astonishingly ludicrous illusion that I burst into a hoarse laugh as I stood in the gloom of that vast silent hall. At that moment, my servant entered with a lighted kerosene lamp in his hand. I do not know whether he thought me mad, but it came back to me at once that I was in very deed Srijut so-and-so, son of so-and-so, of blessed memory, and that while our poets, great and small, alone could say whether inside or outside the earth, there was a region where unseen fountains perpetually played and fairy guitars struck by invisible fingers sent forth an eternal harmony. This, at any rate, was certain, that I collected duties at the cotton market at Parich and earned thereby 450 rupees per month as my salary. I laughed in glee, in great glee, at my curious illusion, as I sat over the newspaper at my camp table, lighted by the kerosene lamp. After I had finished my paper and eaten my Mughalai dinner, I put out the lamp and lay down on my bed in a small side room. Through the open window, a radiant star, high above the Avali hills, skirted by the darkness of their woods, was gazing intently from millions and millions of miles away in the sky at Mr. Collector, lying on the humble camp bedstead. I wondered and felt amused at the idea, and do not know when I fell asleep or how long I slept. But I suddenly awoke with a start, though I heard no sound and saw no intruder. Only the steady, bright star on the hilltop had set, and the dim light of the new moon was stealthily entering the room through the open window, as if ashamed of its intrusion. I saw nobody, but felt as if someone was gently pushing me. As I awoke, she said not a word, but beckoned me with her five fingers, bedecked with rings, to follow her cautiously. I got up noiselessly, and though not a soul save myself was there in the countless apartments of that deserted palace, with its slumbering sounds and waking echoes, I feared at every step, lest anyone should wake up. 
most of the rooms of the palace were always kept closed, and I had never entered them. I followed breathless, and with silent steps, my invisible guide, I cannot now say where. What endless dark and narrow passages, what long corridors, what silent and solemn audience chambers, and closed secret cells I crossed. Though I could not see my fair guide, her form was not invisible to my mind's eye. An Arab girl, her arms hard and smooth as marble, visible through her loose sleeves, a thin veil falling on her face from the fringe of her cap, and a curved dagger at her waist. Methought that one of the thousand and one Arabian nights had been wafted to me from the world of romance and that at the dead of night I was wending my way through the dark, narrow alleys and slumbering Baghdad to a trysting place fraught with peril. At last, my fair guide stopped abruptly before a deep blue screen and seemed to point to something below. There was nothing there, but a sudden dread froze the blood in my heart. Methought I saw there on the floor at the foot of the screen a terrible negro eunuch dressed in a rich brocade sitting and dozing with outstretched legs with a naked sword on his lap my fair guide lightly tripped over his legs and held up a fringe of the screen i could catch a glimpse of only a part of the room spread with a persian carpet someone was sitting inside on a bed I could not see her, but only caught a glimpse of two exquisite feet in gold-embroidered slippers hanging out from loose saffron-colored pajamas and placed idly on the orange-colored velvet carpet. On one side, there was a bluish crystal tray on which a few apples, pears, oranges, and bunches of grapes in plenty. Two small cups and a gold-tinted decanter were evidently awaiting the guest. A fragrant, intoxicating vapor issuing from a strange sort of incense that burned within almost overpowered my senses. With a trembling heart, I made an attempt to step across the outstretched legs of the eunuch. He woke up suddenly with a start, and the sword fell from his lap with a sharp clang on the marble floor. A terrific scream made me jump, and I saw that I was sitting on the campaign steed of mine, sweating heavily, and the crescent moon looked pale in the morning light, like a weary, sleepless patient of dawn. And our crazy Maharali was crying out, as is his daily custom. Stand back, stand back while he went along the long road. Such was the abrupt close of one of my Arabian nights. There were yet a thousand nights left. Then followed a great discord between my days and nights. During the day, I would go to my work, worn and tired, cursing the bewitching night and her empty dreams. But as night came, my daily life with its bonds and shackles of work, will appear petty, 
false, ludicrous vanity. After nightfall, I was caught and overwhelmed in the snare of a strange intoxication. I would then be transformed into some unknown personage of a bygone age, playing my part in unwritten history, and my short English coat and tight breeches did not suit me in the least. With a red velvet cap on my head, loose pyjamas, an embroidered vest, a long flowing silk gown, and colored handkerchiefs centered with atar, I would complete my elaborate toilet, sit on a high cushion chair, and replace my cigarette with a many-coiled nargile filled with rose water, as if in eager expectation of a strange meeting with the beloved. I have no power to describe the marvelous incidents that unfolded themselves. As the gloom of the night deepened, I felt as if in the curious apartments of that vast edifice, the fragments of a beautiful story which I could follow from some distance, but of which I could never see the end, flew about in sudden gust of the vernal breeze. And all the same, I would wander from room to room in pursuit of them all night long. Amid the eddy of these dream fragments, amid the smell of henna and the twanging of the guitar, amid the waves of air charged with fragrant spray, I would catch, like a flash of lightning, the momentary glimpse of a fair times. She who had saffron-colored pajamas, white ruddy soft feet, and gold-embroidered slippers with curved toes, a close-fitting bodice wrought with gold, a red cap from which a golden frill fell on her snowy brow and cheeks. She had maddened me. In pursuit of her, I wandered from room to room, from path to path, among the bewildering maze of alleys in the enchanted dreamland of the netherworld of sleep. Sometimes in the evening, while arraying myself carefully as a prince of the blood royal before a large mirror with a candle burning on either side, I would see a sudden reflection of a person by the side of my own, a swift turn of her neck, a quick, eager glance of intense passion and pain glowing in her large, dark eyes. Just a suspicion of speech on her dainty red lips. Her figure, fair and slim, crowned with youth like a blossoming creeper, quickly uplifted in a graceful tilting gait. A dazzling flash of pain and craving and ecstasy. A smile and a glance and a blaze of jewels and silk. And she melted. A wild gust of wind, laden with all the fragrance of hills and woods, would pour out my light, and I would fling aside my dress and lie down on my bed, my eyes closed and my body thrilling with delight. And there around me in the breeze, amid all the perfume of the woods and the hills, floated through the silent gloom many a caress and many a kiss and many a tender touch of hands and gentle murmurs in my ears and fragrant breaths on my brow 
or a sweetly perfumed kerchief was wafted again and again on my cheeks. Then slowly, a mysterious serpent would twist her stupefying coils around me, and heaving a heavy sigh, I would lapse into insensibility, and then into a profound slumber. One evening, I decided to go out on my horse. I do not know who implored me to stay, but I would listen to no entreaties that day. My English hat and coat were resting on a rack, and I was about to take them down when a sudden whirlwind, crested with the sands of the Susta and the dead leaves of the Avali hills, caught them up and whirled them round and round, while a loud peal of merry laughter rose higher and higher, striking all the chords of mirth till it died away in the land of sunset. I could not go out for my ride, and the next day I gave up my queer English hat and coat for good. That day again, at the dead of the night, I heard the stifled, heartbreaking sobs of someone, as if below the bed, below the floor, below the stony foundation of that gigantic palace, from the depths of a dark, damp grave, a voice piteously cried and implored me. Oh, rest in me. Break through these doors of hard illusion, that like slumber through the streams. Place me by your side on the saddle. Press me to your heart. And ride into the hills and woods and across the river. Take me to the warm radiance of your sunny rooms above. Whoever? Oh, how can I rescue thee? What drowning beauty, what incarnate passion shall I drag to the shore of this wild deading of dreams? Oh, lovely ethereal apparition, where didst thou flourish, and when? By what cool spring, under the shade of what date grows, wast thou born? In the lap of what homeless wandering in the desert? What bedouin snatched thee from thy mother's arms? An opening bud plucking wild creeper placed thee on a horse swift as lightning across the burning sands and took thee the slave market of what royal city? And then, what officer of the Badshah, seeing the glory of thy bashful blossom and you paid for thee in gold, placed thee in a golden palanquin? and offered thee as a present for the Seraglio of his master? And oh, the history of that place, the music of the Sarang, the jingle of the anklets, the occasional flash of daggers, and the glowing wine of Shiraz poison, and the piercing flash of lance. What infinite grandeur, what endless servitude! The slave girls to thy right and left wave the Jaman, as diamonds flashed out from their bracelets. The Badshah, King of Kings, fell on his knees at thy snowy feet, the jeweled shoes, and outside the terrible abyssinian looking like a messenger of death, clothed like an angel, stood with a naked sword in his hand. Then, oh, thou flower of the desert, swept away by the blood-stained, dazzling ocean of grandeur, with its form of jealousy, its rocks and shoals in dream, on what shore of 
Suddenly, at this moment, that crazy Maharani screamed out, "Stand back! Stand back! All his faults! All his faults!" I opened my eyes and saw it was already light. My chaprasi came and handed me my letters, and the cook waited with a salam for my orders. I said, "No, I can stay here no longer." That very day, I packed up and moved to my office. Old Karim Khan smiled a little as he saw me. I felt nettled, but said nothing, and fell to my work. As evening approached, I grew absent-minded. I felt as if I had an appointment to keep, and the work of examining the cotton accounts seemed wholly useless. Even the nizamat of the nizam did not appear to be of much worth. Whatever belonged to the present, whatever was moving and acting and working for bread, seemed trivial, meaningless, and contemptible. I threw my pen down, closed my ledgers, got into my dog cart, and drove away. I noticed that it stopped of itself at the gate of the marble palace, just at the hour of twilight. With quick steps, I climbed the stairs and entered the room. A heavy silence was reigning within. The dark rooms were looking sullen, as if they had taken offence. My heart was full of contrition. But there was no one to whom I could lay it bare, or of whom I could ask forgiveness. I wandered about the dark rooms with a vacant mind. I wished I had a guitar to which I could sing to the unknown. Oh fire! The poor moth that made a way for it to fly away has come back to thee. Forgive it, but this once burn its wings and consume it in thy flame. Suddenly. Two teardrops fell from overhead on my brow. Dark masses of clouds overcast the top of the Avali Hills that day. The gloomy, sooty waters of the Sustan were waiting in terrible suspense and in an ominous calm. Suddenly, land and water and sky shivered, and a wild tempest blast rushed howling through the distant, pathless woods, showing its lightning teeth like a raving maniac who had broken his chains. The desolate halls of the palace banged their doors and moaned in the bitterness of the anguish. The servants were all in the office, and there was no one to light the lamps. The night was cloudy and moonless. In the dense gloom within, I could distinctly feel that a woman was lying on her face on the carpet below the bed, clasping and tearing her long, dishevelled hair with desperate fingers. Blood was trickling down her fair brow, and she was now laughing a hard, harsh, mirthless laugh. Now bursting into violent, ringing sobs. Now rending her bodice and striking at her bare bosom, as the wind roared in through the open window, and the rain poured in torrents and soaked her through and through. All night there was no cessation of the storm, or of the passionate cry. I wandered from room to room in the dark, with unavailing sorrow. Whom could I console when no one was by? Whose was the intense agony of sorrow? Whence arose this inconsolable grief? And the madman cried out, "Stand back! Stand back! All is false! All is false!" 
I saw that the day had dawned, and Maher Ali was going round and round the palace with his usual cry that trickled better. Stand back, stand back, stand back, stand back, stand back. Suddenly, it came to me that perhaps he had also once lived in that house, and that he had gone mad. He came there every day and went round and round, fascinated by the weird spell cast by the marble demon. Despite the storm and rain, I ran to him and asked, Oh, Mahar Ali, what is false? The man answered nothing, but pushing me aside, went round and round with his frantic cry, like a bird flying fascinated about the jaws of a snake, and made a desperate effort to warn himself by repeating, Stand back, stand back! All is false! All is false! I ran like a madman through the pelting rain to my office and asked Karim Khan, Tell me the meaning of all this! What I gathered from the old man was this, that at one time countless unrequited passions and unsatisfied longings and lurid flames of wild blazing pleasure raged within that palace and that the curse of all the heartaches and blasted hopes had made its every stone thirsty and hungry eager to swallow up like a famished ogress any living man who might chance to approach not one of those who lived there for three consecutive nights could escape those cruel jaws save Maher Ali who had escaped at the cost of his reason. All is false. All is false. I asked, Is there no means whatever of my release? The old man said, There is only one means, and that is very difficult. I will tell you what it is. But first, you must hear the history of the young Persian girl who once lived in that pleasure dome. A stranger or more bitterly heart-rendering tragedy was never enacted on this earth. Just at this moment, the coolies announced that the train was coming. So soon? We hurriedly packed up our luggage as the train steamed in. An English gentleman, apparently just aroused from slumber, was looking out of a first-class carriage, endeavoring to read the name of the station. As soon as he caught sight of our fellow passenger, he cried, Oh, hello! and took him to his own compartment. As we got into a second-class carriage, we had no chance of finding out who the man was, nor what was the end of the story. I said, the man evidently took us for fools and imposed upon us out of fun. This story is pure fabrication from start to finish. The discussion that followed ended in a lifelong rupture between my dear service kinsman and myself. Desert Gems Audio presents Ravenna Draft Awards, The Hungry Stones, featuring music by Zao, Ophis Style Chaos, Vishuddha Kali, which was from Fire, 
rituals from stone. Sound effects from freesound.org. Rahul Kuru as narrator and man on the train. Tom Karen as Kareem Khan and British traveler. Avery Smithart as Phantasm. Fazal Yakub as Nera Ali. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved.